Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Today, as you know, is Palm Sunday, the start of what is commonly called the Passion Week or Holy Week, this week leading up to Easter Sunday. And a third of the Gospels, the Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a third of their content are about this final week of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, The next seven days are the best disclosure of who Jesus was and is. So as I do every year, I'm going to ask you to lean into Holy Week, maybe read those relevant scriptures. You could start today with Luke chapter 19 and read Luke 19 through 24. You could read one chapter each day for the next seven days and have a nice uh, Holy Week Bible reading plan taking you right up to Easter Sunday. And of course, uh, you'll want to come back and join us Thursday or Friday for the Service of Shadows. I've told you about this service. It's a very old practice where the scriptures of Holy Week are read and candles are extinguished and we feel the encroaching darkness uh, on us. It's a very somber evening. Uh, It is going to be live streamed, but to be honest, we're not entirely sure how this will translate online. It might be one of those you have to be in the room when it happens to get the full uh, experience. I want to give that as a disclaimer. If you're comfortable coming, join us on Thursday or Friday, the same service offered on both evenings as part of the journey toward Easter. Uh, To get ready for Easter, this past month, we've been studying a single chapter in the Bible, chapter 8 from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, Chapter 8 is one of the most loved passages in all the Bible. Some people have called it the best chapter ever. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called this the brightest gem in all of Scripture. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote an entire cantata based on this single chapter in the Bible. And today we get to the finale. We get to the best of the best. We get to the favorite of the favorite as we read Paul passionately describe the inseparable love of God. Now, the challenge I have today is when I tell you this sermon is about God's love, all of you think you've already heard this sermon. Uh, You don't need to be a part of church very long. doesn't matter how long you've been part of a church or how old you are or what tradition you come from. You have heard somewhere along the way that God loves you, and you're tempted to just tune it out, you know, another sermon about God's love. And this was... Paul's challenge as well. He's talking to people who've heard that God loves them, and he desperately wants them to understand that this, lo- this, this unique, the uniqueness of the love of God and the magnitude of the love of God. So when he gets to the end of chapter 8, he starts to really get ramped up. You can feel it in his energy level. He starts throwing out all kinds of adjectives. He's got run-on sentences. He's just throwing everything up, hoping something will stick and something will break through. And today's sermon is going to feel like that. Uh, my experience is sometimes the most simple truths are the most difficult to truly understand. Maybe it'd be helpful to define some terms. You know, in the English language, some words lose their meaning because of overuse or misuse. And I think the the word love is in that category. You know, we say, I love basketball. I love my wife. I love nachos. I love your outfit. I love that song. I love Florida. And we use this word in so many different contexts, great and small. And then we take that same word and we use it to describe God's interactions with us. 
In English, we have just one word, and so whether I'm describing my feelings about my kids or about my coffee, I use this one word, love. And that wasn't Paul's problem. The Greek language, a much richer language, much broader language, and when my friend Harvey Carey was here to speak last month, he reminded us that there were other words that Paul could have chosen in the Greek language for love. Uh, A lot of you know this. He could have chosen the Greek word eros, translated love. It's a very emotional word, often refers to romantic love, but Paul did not use the Greek word eros. He could have used the Greek word phileo or filio, That's the most common word for love in Paul's day. This is the word you would use to describe your love for your family member or for for a son or daughter or a close friend. Uh, This implies deep affection and loyalty. Uh, But of course, the word that he used was the deepest word, the most revered word for love. He used the Greek word agape, an unconditional, sacrificial love that doesn't ask for anything in return. It's this unchanging, unreserved, unqualified love that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter eight. Most forms of love that we are familiar with are I love you because. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're funny. I love you because you're successful. I love you because you're generous. In fact, we have great Hallmark greeting cards that say, there are so many reasons that I love you. Let me count the ways. But those lead to some pressure, don't they? Because if they love you because you're beautiful, what happens when beauty fades? If they love you because you're successful, what happens when you fail? If they love you because you're funny, What happens when they realize that actually you're just kind of annoying? What happens then? Most love is based upon us. It's what we bring to the table. But the love that Paul is talking about in chapter 8, it just is. It just is. So maybe defining some terms can help us understand what Paul wants us to grasp. Though a lot of you already knew those things about agape. Maybe a dictionary is the wrong place to go anyway to understand love. Maybe it's a story. Maybe a story communicates what dictionary definitions never could. You know, maybe we all need to watch a movie like The Notebook and get swept away in this picture of love. Stories are powerful, and of course the Bible is replete with stories intended to communicate the heart of God toward humanity. The primary teaching tool of Jesus was stories, and he would tell a story, as you know, about very familiar things, and then he would use it as an allegory, as a parable to explain some truth about the kingdom of God. He would say, ever see a woman, a poor woman, desperately searching for a lost coin? Ever seen a shepherd on the lookout for a lost sheep? And they they had, and then he would say, now you know something about God's heart for lost people. He would just spin stories about corrupt judges and tenacious widows and about buried treasures and lazy employees and bad debts and noisy neighbors and wayward children, all to describe the persistent, forgiving, initiating love of God. And it wasn't only Jesus who told 
stories who used allegory to teach about God's love. There's one time in the Old Testament when God desperately wants his people to understand the magnitude of his love, and God knows he's going to have to do something dramatic to have them hear this. And so he says to his prophet Hosea a very strange thing. He says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Seems like a lot to ask. Really, for anybody, male or female, just, you know, marrying somebody named Gomer would be a stretch all by itself. But she was a very well-known prostitute, and so Hosea does it. He takes her home as his wife. He loves her. They, they do eventually become family. They have kids together, and then one night Hosea wakes up in the middle of the night, and she's gone. And he's got this sick feeling in the pit of his stomach, and he goes to that side of town where he first found her, and sees her walking out of a cheap hotel with another man. And his heart is broken, and he cries out to God, God, why? God, you told me to marry her. Now what? And God says to his prophet Hosea, I want you to bring her home and love her. Why, God, why? Because I want this to be an unforgettable picture of my love for my people, even though they've been unfaithful to me. I want this to be an enduring picture. I want this to be a story that gets through the, that's a story, the power of story. Stories are really, really helpful, but in the end, even the, 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 the best told story does not accurately communicate the extent of God's love. So maybe it's not definitions or stories. Uh, maybe a picture could help us. Because after all, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And likely you recognize the, the source image for this graphic that we've been using for this entire series. Uh, you recognize it. You know this comes from the Italian artist Michelangelo. The, the bigger picture looks more like this. Uh, right? This is a very famous painting uh, called The Creation of Adam. And it's painted, uh, you know, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican in Rome. This painting is 500 years old. It's actually a bigger painting. I've cropped it here for Sunday morning church use. Um, and and, uh, and you, can, you can read a lot of what the art critics say about this. Very famous, very insightful. But right now I want you to notice the arms in the, in the painting. You have the arm of Adam, the arm of the human race, it's, it's, uh, it's flexible, e even limp, almost looks like a, a, a half-hearted attempt. The arm of God is reaching and stretching, and the muscles are bulging, right? Th this, this painting communicates a reaching love, a stretching love, a, 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 a strong love. And maybe a painting communicates something that a definition or a story is unable to do. Now remember, Paul has set up this very encouraging chapter um, about inseparable love. He sets it up by first describing the reality of the human condition, right? The bad news sets up the good news. The bad news makes the good news really, really good, and the bad news is we don't deserve this love. The bad news is we are condemned, we are distant, we are under law, Paul gives us a reality check on our condition. Uh, I, I got my first uh, COVID vaccine last week. 
uh, right now, it's el- everybody over 50 years old is eligible. But back when I signed up, it had to be over 50 with an underlying medical condition. And when I looked at the list of underlying medical conditions, there are things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity. And I thought there's probably a few boxes I, I could probably check. But I wanted to be honest about this, and I wasn't sure some of you know that I had cancer. That was two years ago, keyword being had. And I, I, I figured that the early vaccines were for probably people who have cancer, not people like me who had cancer, so I didn't check that box. I thought the cleanest box for me to check was the one labeled obesity. And I wasn't quite sure the legal definition of obesity, uh, but I was pretty sure that I was qualified. And it turns out you don't have to be that overweight to be considered obese. Uh, In fact, more of you are in the club than you know. (laughs) And when I did the math, it turns out not only am I qualified, I am overqualified. By the numbers, I am just barely in a category that they call morbidly obese. Two awful words laid side by side, and I felt this shame when I checked that box. You know, if I had designed the form, if I was coming up with the language around these conditions, I I would have used softer language so people didn't have to feel so bad about themselves. Right? It would have been a very different experience. The nurse would have said, Mr. McKee, I see you checked the pleasingly plump box on our form. And uh, yes, I did. Or they would have said, "Uh, Mr. McKee, I see you fall in the more of me to love category on the chart. Yeah. I would have come up with a kinder language around it. And to add insult to injury, the guy at the front desk of the vaccination site asked me for my name, my birth date, and proof of medical condition. I checked obesity. I, I... Really, I didn't... Do you want to grab a fistful here? You... You want me to take off my shirt and jump up and down a couple times and see waves of proof coming right in? I was, I was already embarrassed. Just let me through. Let the heat of the moment pass. In the Bible, when Paul describes the human condition, he uses harsh language. Sinner. That's the word he uses, sinner. It's got a, it's got a sting to it. And not just sinner, but condemned sinner. Two awful words side by side. And again, we might be tempted to soften the language. How about mistake maker? How about occasional judgment lapser? How about just saying, hey, we all make mistakes? Paul uses harsh language for a harsh situation. He builds this case in Romans chapter 1 through 7. He first talks about all the sins that the Gentiles were prone to in his era. And then he talks about the sins that the the Jews were prone to. And by the time you get through it, you realize we're all in the same boat. We've all fallen short. We're all under law. We are all condemned. And then Romans 8 begins with these words, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapters 1 through 7, they hear applause. You can applaud for that. Chapters 1 through 7, there's a sense that you are condemned, right? And then you walk in and you hear the news that though you're guilty, all charges against you have been dropped. Maybe the real way to understand love is not by looking at definitions or a story, but by looking at an event. 
by looking at an action. Paul says in this chapter, he who did not spare his own son. You want to know how much God loves you? He gave up his beloved son. Now we should say that the son voluntarily gave himself up, but the father had to agree how much, how great must be the love of God for you. Paul says the greatest proof of God's love is that he gave his only son in your place. And it was on Palm Sunday that that perfect sacrifice, that lamb of God, entered the city toward his intended purpose. Paul goes on. He says, uh, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. God is able to justify because Jesus was condemned in our place. And that's the kind of love that God has for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He set us free. And it's this kind of love that sets Christianity apart from other religions. The Buddhist eightfold path to enlightenment is based on how you do personally, on your personal performance. The Hindu doctrine of karma is based on how good you are. Muslims have a strict code of moral law and you have to follow it very strictly if you have any hope of entering into paradise. It's not just these major world religions. I was reading about the Lakota warriors and in an effort to atone for their sins, they have an eagle's claw uh, inserted into the flesh of their chest and then they go to these heat lodges where hot stones are placed to the place where it gets unbearable. In Costa Rica, peasants with bloody knees crawl on cobblestone streets. Why? To try to make things right to try to atone. And when we really don't understand God's love, we end up doing the same thing. Now we don't go to a heat lodge or crawl on cobblestone streets, but we get caught up in this deal that we have to earn God's love by being good enough. But Paul says that it was Jesus Christ who was condemned for us. Jesus died in our place, and Romans 8.34 continues, not only did he die, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus did not stay dead. He was raised to life. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. And not only does Jesus not condemn us, he intercedes for us. This is really good news. So Paul poses this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, is any of those things a sign that God no longer loves me? And Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then these famous words, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we understand this kind of love, it, it frees us. We no longer need to feel ashamed. We no longer need to feel like when we encounter suffering that God doesn't love us anymore. We no longer need to fear death. 
even death doesn't stop the love of God. This really has become one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible, maybe my, my favorite chapter in the Bible. I've read this over all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And the scripture really became my favorite when I learned that this is the favorite chapter of Corey Tenboom, who's a hero of mine in the Christian faith. You may remember her story. Uh, Corey and her sister Betsy were taken to a Nazi concentration camp when they were teenagers back in the 1940s. And they would sit around the campfire, and this was the passage that they read to each other in the concentration camp. And Corey Tenboom writes this. Again, she's reflecting on this. They would read, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. She goes on, Corey Tenboom. He says, More than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it, we experienced it minute by minute. We were poor, we were hated, we were hungry, but we are more than conquerors. Not we shall be, but we are. And Corey Tenboom writes about the moment when this chapter of the Bible really hit her, really came home to her. She and her sister Betsy were often made to strip naked and walk in the front before German officers. She said it was during this time of humiliating weekly inspection that she thought about this nakedness. Nakedness can't separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then she thought of another scripture of how Jesus Christ was crucified naked on a cross And she said, standing there, covering herself, shivering in the cold corridor, she understood it in a way she had never understood it before. Every painting she had seen, every crucifix, shows Jesus with at least a little bit of fabric covering him. And she realized this was not reality. This was artistic modesty. And she leaned forward to her sister, Betsy, whose shoulders were already sharply sticking out at that point. And she said, Betsy, they took his clothes too. All of them. And Betsy turned back to her sister and said, uh, oh, Corey, and I never never thanked him. Can we see it as if we've never seen it before? I know you've heard about God's love just like I have. I know you're familiar with it. But is there a way to see it that would make it fresh? There's one word in this passage that probably is the most telling. It's the word love in the past tense. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Past tense. And you might wonder, what's, what's going on? Shouldn't that be present tense? Isn't it more than conquerors through God who loves us? Present tense, God loves us right now. God loves us ongoing. But Paul says, through him who loved us, what's going on? Paul is pointing out a specific past event. He's saying that it's him who loved us, referencing one moment that forever determined, forever measured, forever gauged the love of God. He doesn't say what that moment was, but from the context, we know that it was the cross. Paul saying, if you ever doubt God's love for you, Look back to the cross. 
The cross is the best evidence, the best proof, the ultimate proof of God's love. We journey toward Easter. Let's stand together and pray. Well, God, there's something uh, very encouraging, oddly encouraging about not being able to explain a love like yours. I thank you for a love that is so great that we don't fully understand it. But Lord, would you help us get a glimpse of it? Would you help us know it in a way that we've not known it previously? And when the persecution and the suffering on this side of heaven feels like too much, would you remind us that there is nothing that can separate us from your love? This we pray together in Jesus' name. And everybody said,